Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I'm at the Life, the Universe, and Everything Conference in Provo, Utah this week. While on my first panel, I noticed the name of the moderator and know that she was an earlier winner of the Writers of Future contest. Without any hesitation, I introduced myself and briefly told her about this podcast in which she'd be willing to be a guest. So, I am very excited to welcome this week's guest, Susan Krupa. Susan was initially published in Rise of Future Volume 10 as a winner with her story, The Healer. She has since gone on to write The Doodlebugged Mysteries as well as Tree Talker. Her fiction has also appeared in Realms of Fantasy, Bruce Koval's Shapeshifters, and a variety of anthologies. She has lived and taught on both the Hopi and Navajo reservations and written for the Arizona Republic and High Country News. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. So, um, I said it was so exciting seeing you yesterday at the panel when you're moderating, and then I saw the name of my Nora's. So I was so happy to uh, to uh, to run into you. So I guess we'll definitely get into how you found out Rise of the Future. But first of all, how did you get started as an author? How did that begin for you? Um, first of all, I'm delighted to have this podcast. Uh, I started writing nonfiction, actually. Uh, I was living in Indiana, and uh, I started uh, writing some articles. And then it turns out that I was the only person in Bloomington, Indiana, with a music degree that wasn't affiliated with Indiana University School of Music. So I ended up with a job writing music reviews and a weekly column for the local newspaper there. And then when we we moved west, and uh, I uh, lived in um, Sholo, Arizona, and I did some freelancing for the Arizona Republic at that time. Mm -hmm. And about that time is when I actually started writing fiction. I get it. And how did you find out about Rise of the Future? You know, I subscribed to various writing magazines, and the names of which escape me now because it's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they would have an advertisement or something in the back. And I taught, I was teaching a writing class for uh, creative writing for adults, and I would go through all the contests because, as you know, a lot of contests are more to make the contest money than to actually help the people. Sure. And when I read Writers of the Future and all they gave and the fact that it was free, I would tell my students, hey, you need this is the contest you should enter because it, it's going to give you good things and it's not going to bilk you out of uh, money just uh, to make it. And then uh, I ended up getting a divorce at that time and moving to, back to, uh, to Utah and that's when I uh, wrote my uh, first story, um, and uh, I sent it to Writers of the Future because I practiced what I preached, yep. and uh, it came back, and I can't remember what it came back with, an honorable mention or a semifinalist, something like that. And uh, I wrote a second story, sent it to Chris Rush, who was at that time the editor of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Yep. And she said, good writing, Susan. I would condense it a little and tighten it a little bit. 
and then send it out again. So I did what she said and sent it to Writers of the Future, and it won first place. So I, if it's okay to go on like yeah, this, yeah. I was a single parent, and I had five kids at home. I have seven kids. I had five kids at home, and the money from Writers of the Future was was a lot for me. It really made a difference. I was able to fence the yard of the house that we had so that my dog could have a fenced yard. <laughs> and of course, the uh, trip and all the education and learning and getting published as a pro author in an anthology was really, really something. And I have a good friend who's a mystery writer. I called her when I learned I had won, and I I told her, you know, I'm getting a thousand dollars, you know, for winning, and then a thousand dollars for going into the anthology. And she says, "That's novel money." <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that it doesn't happen anywhere else. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, so it it was wonderful, and. Uh, at that time, I was in a writing group uh, called Zenobia, and it had Dave Wolverton in it. Uh, it had Shane M. Shane Bell. Yeah. It had many other people who eventually went on to win Writers of the Future. Yeah, so M. Shane Bell won in Volume 3, as did Dave Wolverton. They were both Volume 3 winners. Right. And, they, and uh, Shane came uh, to the event, to the award ceremony. Uh, when I won, oh, that's that great, was yeah. really nice. We're we're good friends, but yeah. but uh, I wanted to say too that the illustrator who did my book uh, was I can't remember. I should have looked this up. She was from Poland, I think. Uh, and uh, she won the grand prize that year, and. I was her roommate for part of the time, and she mm-hmm. was so overwhelmed by it. Afterward, in the room, she just kept crying and crying. But uh, Dave Wolverton told me, he said, you know, that kind of money can go really a long way. Yeah. Where she, where she's from, yeah. Yeah. And I loved the fact that the contest is international. Yeah, this year in Volume 39, we have winners from nine countries. We've never had wow. this many. Wow. Yeah. We get thousands of entries a quarter now, whereas it wasn't that many when. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just grown. I asked Dave, but he never tell me. <laughs> no, the most I'll say is thousands a quarter. I won't yeah, say right. actual numbers. Yes, of course. Yeah, and it varies, I'm sure. Yeah, each year for the last nine years, the number of entries for the contest has just been the highest ever. Every every year for the last nine years, continues to grow, which is great. So on your um. Anything in particular to remember from that week workshop in the awards event? Uh, just that it was wonderful and intimidating and <laughs> uh, scary and such good people I was working with all at once. So and you had, was it A.J. Budras? He was? Yes, I had A.J. and uh, Tim Powers. and, uh, and Teaching the workshop, yeah. Yeah. They were, they were great. Tim Tim came up to me more than once and told me how much he loved my story, which was really meaningful to me. For sure. He still teaches the workshop. Right. Yeah. That's great. So now, so you entered and you won. So what happened there? Because you've got this, 
the the Doodlebug novels. That that was in two thousand ten. That ten or eleven, but in between time, I um, with the credit of writing Writers of the Future, I submitted and got sold stories to various science fiction anthologies. I re, uh, my winning story in Writers of the Future was reprinted twice. Yep, and uh, I sold it, the other story that they had done. At, that had made a quarter finalist. I had revised it a little and was my first magazine sale, which was to realms of fantasy. Oh, good. And, uh, did you ever sell your 24 hour story? Uh, no. Okay. Several, several winners have gone on to sell their 24 hour stories too. I was just curious. Yeah. I, you know, I never, uh, to be honest, I never finished it quite to my satisfaction. So I didn't submit it in, in the way, uh, I almost died when I learned I had to write a story in 24 hours. Uh, it was an awakening that, and it's a fact that if you can write more quickly and let your subconscious get into that and write, you will do better in writing. And it's something I've struggled with because I'm not necessarily a fast writer. But I did go to one of the Chris and Dean, several of the Chris and Dean workshops where I had to do it, and I did it. You know, yeah. and I did sell some of the stories that I wrote overnight yeah, that, from well, that, them yeah. to Realms of Fantasy again. Oh, good. I mean, that's where they got it from was the Rise of Feature Workshop. That's, right. They totally emulated that. And they say they're absolutely, you know, we, we oh. totally ripped off Rise of Feature and what we do in our workshops. Right. They they totally promoted Writers of the Future. Yeah. I mean, he was the first, per- Dean was the first person to be awarded on the stage. Wow. On volume one. Yeah. Wow. And they both went to the first workshop. So now, um, so you wrote other short fiction and then, then yeah, and wrote, book. was that yeah. your first novels? Uh, no, I wrote uh, actually a thousand word historical novel called Priest Killer that won second place in the Utah Arts Council. It won an award from the uh, Southwest Writers Association um, that gave me quite a bit of money just for being an honorable mention and uh, won several other awards, um, but it hasn't been published. And uh, so I did that, and then I was working on um, some other things, and if this isn't too personal, about two th- my mother died in February of 2010. We had moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains because we wanted trees and beauty. And- that Kentucky? Uh, we were in Southwest Virginia, Got but it. it is partly in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. Just so beautiful. And but I was a little lonely. My, most of my kids were in the West. And uh, after my mom died, I got kind of depressed, and I was working on some things that were darker. And I thought, you know what? I want something cheerful. And my son lives in Arlington. He's an attorney in Arlington. Uh, he had got bed, bed bugs in his apartment. Uh, that's where that comes from. Okay. Yeah. And he had somebody come and scour out his apartment who had a bed bug detecting dog. In fact, he told me, he says, I think I have ticks. I, I have these bites all over. I think I have ticks. And I said, are there bugs connected to those bites? And he said, no. I said, they're not ticks. They're probably bed bugs. And so then he found out they were. 
And um, for these books, I interviewed a member of the first company to train bed bug scent detection dogs. And oh, what a riot that was. I mean, wow. I interviewed more than one people, but I interviewed him and, and he just told hilarious stories. For example, they'd go into these five-star hotels to check for bed bugs, and the hotels naturally wouldn't want them identified as being bed bug detecting dogs. So they didn't have any kind of logo. And he said he'd walk into a room where there's a bunch of offices and everybody would suddenly pack up their briefcase and, and leave. And they thought they were drug detecting dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was a fascinating uh, thing. And since then, I, you know, kind of got involved in the dog world. Mm-hmm. And there's an association called the Dog Writers Association of America. And I've won, they have these medallions, and I've won three medallions for them, not for my novels, but for short stories. And then for one of my novels, I won a $500 award from the American Kennel Association, uh, AKC, uh, for the best writing on um, a certain aspect of dog training for one of my books. And so that was pretty cool. That's very cool. Now, what's fascinating... Because I only, you know, when we met yes or two days ago, so, yeah, two days ago, it was on Thursday. It was Thursday we met, right? Yes. Okay, good. So, added the jam through your book to... Uh, <laughs> right. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, but now that I'm talking to you, I had no idea there's so much actual facts in your, in your book. So, my, first of all, like you said, where have I been living? But I, I learned a new word, doodlebug. I mean... Um, <laughs> You know, but just the um, Labradoodle, rather. That was a word. I just, Labradoodle, I looked it up and it really is a cross between a Labrador retriever and a poodle. I thought, ah, oh, it's for real. And then um, they're nicknamed a doodle. That's what they're called. But then this idea of where are these bed bugs and how's that come from? And then the fact that it's a real, I thought, that's bizarre. You have a dog that sniffs out bed bugs. But now that you talk about this, it makes total sense because you got people coming from all over the world into these hotels and heaven knows what they bring with them. It's true. And some of the biggest, most expensive hotels have had problems with bed bugs. Here's the thing about a dog's nose. Uh, you hear different figures, but they have millions of more sensors in their nose. Sure. They see the world through their nose. They have eyes, but even in my books, Doodle, the character, does not think it's real unless it has scent. Right. Because that's why he doesn't think TV is worth anything, because it has no scent, you know? Right, right. But uh, that's how they see the world. And uh, they actually have cadaver-detecting dogs that can find a cadaver that has been dead over 15 years from a boat over 15, uh, 10 or 15 feet of water. That's how keen a dog's nose is. Wow. But it is in the training, and that they have to be well-trained. And it became very popular to have bed bug detection dogs, but not all the training was as thorough as it should have been, and so their results weren't always good. But a well-trained dog can not only distinguish between – they have to be able to distinguish between a live and a dead bed bug and only alert on live ones. So that if the place was, uh, you know, fumigated a year before, they're not giving an alert. 
So it's pretty fascinating. Wow. It is fascinating. But like I said, I mean, I read this. It was like, okay, this is a this is a fun story, and then you then you, then you start talking about um, it's multi generational. So I'd like to discuss that, especially for the aspiring writer, how you write something that's a, a, that appeals to at least a young adult. I don't know how early it, it goes, but all the way up to an adult. And then now that I'm finding all this stuff that's in there, that's no, that's fact. No, that's fact. No, that's real. Then I'm like, wow, I had no idea. So tell me how that works and how you're able to do that and put that together. When I first got the idea of wanting to do uh, uh, the Doodlebug Mysteries, I really wanted to narrate from the dog's point of view. And I had read Spencer Quinn's, some of his um, Chet and Bernie novels, which are just excellent books. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're darker than my books and aimed at an older clientele, but, you know, they were really good. And so um, I wanted to write a book that would appeal both to children but to adults. Um, and so I... I have the story, there is the surface story of Doodle going into a new family and making these adjustments in a new family. And he starts out with, it's just a job, do the job, get my pay, which in his case is treats, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's all I'm in it for. But of course, as you know, as he goes through the book, he becomes very fond of Molly, the the boss's daughter, the, the boss is Molly's dad, and the boss is the one who owns the detection agency and takes Doodle out. And I, I thought, well, this will be a good thing because the boss being able to take him different places would give me uh, ideas for further mysteries so that I wasn't stuck um, having right. no content. And then Molly has her issues, and the boss has his own issues, but the point of view is always the dogs, and Molly is the solver of the problem. But as adults read with the subtext, they see the boss and they see his struggles too. Sometimes he'll say things and Doodle won't understand what he means, but the reader will understand what he reads because yeah. Doodle doesn't do subtext. You know? Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you say, um, and he doesn't do metaphors very well either, you know? No. No, he's got that, that. If you say when pigs fly, he'll say, "Pigs fly." That's the worst idea I've ever heard. Birds are bad enough, you yes. know. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's um, yeah. You have the. Was that you? You made one one of the uh, idioms about. Um, I didn't smell that one coming, or whatever. And he just says, "What are you doing?" That people don't smell. It's like you don't. <laughs> One of those, maybe those little idioms, like it's totally from the perspective of the dog, but it's also a dog from what would be the perception of a dog, too, from that that reality. Right. Scent is everything. He's not one of those kind of dogs you see in some books where he's a human in a dog form. Right. He has a dog sensibility. One of my early reviewers, uh, just a beta reader, said he's too obsessed with food. For which a dog breeder friend of mine just laughed and laughed and laughed. <laughs> He's a dog. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But uh, but yes, it's all from scent. And sometimes he'll smell things that he'll make observations about. But he's never the one who actually discovers the villain because he's not human. 
but he is instrumental in Molly being able to find the villain and protecting yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, like the the last scene of there where he's where they run into the into the villains there in, in the in the book, and uh, and Molly's trying to say no, 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 chill, 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 and he says no. Yeah, you right. Know, <laughs> you can see what he's doing there, but then when they grab Molly, and then he then she realizes that oh. You know, so it's a good yeah. thing that, that Doodle does what Doodle did. One other thing, if I may, I'd like yeah. to say is that these are intentionally multicultural in, in the sense that I just wanted to be inclusive to a world. Molly's mother was Mexican. She was, a, her parents were illegal immigrants. This is ba all backstory before the book opens. But she was a natural born citizen. And then she disappeared when Molly was three. So part of the quest through all the books is Molly, who really wants to get to know her Mexican side of the family, her Mexican heritage. And if I had a word to say, and this is why I think these books appeal to adults beyond kids, uh, what the Doodlebugs books are about, it's about family. And learning what is family and and you know is this is any of this these books like I said, i've only read the one there are any of them based on personal stories do you have personal characters or your dogs is that something oh yes <laughs> funny you ask i when uh in 2010 i guess right after we moved um and the country was in a decline economically. I had always wanted a Labradoodle, and I'd seen that there was a local person, but they were very pricey. They were expensive. And uh, then I found out that there was this lady who had Labradoodle puppies. And I said, how much are they? And she said, right now, I can't find homes for them. I just want to make sure they go to good homes. So one very cold, wintry day on the mountain. I mean, it was so cold. It was in November. We went and looked at these puppies, and we picked up this curly-haired puppy, just cute as can be. And we weren't prepared to adopt a puppy. We just come to look, and I said, well, we'll think about it. And she practically pushed us in the car with that puppy in our hands. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to be very careful and get the right, you know, yada, yada. And that dog, whom we named Shadow, was the prototype for Doodle. And he's he is the dog on the cover of the books. He was his own dog. He was really the dog that would mean smart uh, does not necessarily mean obedient. <laughs> Yeah. He was he would he was what I'd call dominant. He would do his own thing, but I called it amiable dominant because if he couldn't get his own way, he wouldn't bite you. <laughs> he he had a and he knew more people in our area than I did. We lived in the country, and I would see a car stop by our driveway, and the guy would open the door, and Shadow would run over to him, and he'd pet him, and he'd love him, and I didn't know this guy, and he'd say, oh, I just love Shadow, and I went to a party of some friends of mine who lived down the way, and three people already knew Shadow because he had gone down to visit them without me knowing, yeah. <laughs> and met them, Wow! and he was just an amazing 
dog. Not always easy. We were way out of our depth his first year of puppyhood. But uh, but you made it. In but the, we made it, yeah. And he inspired the he book. He sufficed to inspire the book. That's good. So how many books are in the series? Seven. And so it's all the same dog, but just different adventures. Different adventures. Mysteries, yeah. And they actually highlight uh, some of them uh, different uh, problems, uh, issues in the dog uh, world. Uh, the latest book called Ill Served is about the growing number of fake service dogs, people who raise dogs, sell them as service dogs for a lot of money, and the dogs are not properly trained and have led to dire results. Um, one of the books is called Mischipped, and it's about uh, n not only dog theft, but microchipping, and uh, some of uh, you wouldn't think there'd be issues, but there are. And so uh, in the one that I got the award from, from the AKC, it uh, Doodle takes the canine good citizen test, which is an AKC award where your dog learns to have some basic obedience things. But um, he says, you know, he says, it turned out to be no walk in the park. Who said there'd be explosions? <laughs> you know, yeah. so uh, they get targeted by a, a PETA-like group that, you know, doesn't believe in um, pet ownership and... Right. So there's various things, and yet they never get graphically violent. No one dies. There's wrongdoing, and there are bad people, but there is no um, unseen graphic violence or e even implied, and no uh, language. In fact, we, in the middle grade panel I was on, they asked about language, and I said, well, I had originally a few dams and hills in the first book. And then I thought, well, I just want to reach an audience. I don't want to limit my audience. Mm -hmm. I want to reach an audience for whom these are happy, comfortable books. And so I, I took them out. But um, it's not that there's no swearing in the book. When there's swearing in the book, Doodle will remark, and then he started to use what the boss calls language. <laughs> right. So you're able to deal with that. It's like what? Um, I don't know if you've ever read um, Mission Earth. Oh, yeah. I yeah, love so, that book. Yeah. So in there, the, um, the way that, that, that Mr. Hubbard handled profanity is the computer that does all the translation refuses to do profanity. So it's a, it's a beep. So every time there's a profanity, you, you read a beep, you know, so there's no profanity in there at all. Right. It could be really super obscene, but there's not nary a word because they're all beep. <laughs> That's a clever idea. Yeah, it worked out good. So you take something from R plus X minus to PG-13. Right. Uh, yeah. So you seem to do, again, this is now for aspiring writers, like how you do this and what about this and that other thing. So it seems like you do a fair amount of research. I do do a fair amount of research because, I, first of all, research helps you have something to write about. Yeah. You know, just writing, if it's only about a cute dog that's a little bit sassy in his thoughts, you know, you can certainly run out of material quickly. Yeah. And I need situations to put him in that are realistic. And um, so that's where research is. 
when I wrote that Hopi historical uh, novel, I just have two file cabinets full of the research. I had help from librarian at BYU and just, you know, I did so much research to Mm -hmm. try to get that. Anything I do involves research because it gives you ideas and it helps you understand your world and understand your character. So your character isn't just moving through a plot with no emotional stake. If you have the research and you know all the details, then you know how to set the stakes for your characters that maybe are meaningful to readers. Exactly. Another thing I see too, your this book I just, just read would be, I could see that a, a middle grade student could read, okay, that's either like dogs or they don't. But then if you have an adult, if you have something that's, because adults are just notorious or can be notorious for trying to pick something apart. You know, like, oh, that's not real. Oh, that's, but by having done your homework on it and that there really are dog sniffers who go after bed bugs, which I had no idea existed. <laughs> but now that I know this, is like, it makes total sense because certain countries are not. They don't really care. They've, you know, when they come from other countries, it's they don't have certain qualities about them that would prevent bed bugs from traveling in their suitcases when they come in. They come over from one place to another, and they bring the bed bugs with them in their suitcases. Yeah, and dogs, you know, they're used, of course, for drug sniffing, but they're also used to. They can they can be trained to sniff fleas. They can be trained to sniff uh, lice. They can be trained to sniff mold. They can be trained to sniff pretty much anything. And in my latest book, the dog in question, who's not a well-trained dog, was supposed to be a diabetic alert dog because they can be trained to sniff a sun change in blood sugar in a human. And so the boy that has this dog uh, has a problem where he doesn't always know that his blood sugar is dropping precipitously and a diabetic alert dog, uh, and they have seizure alert dogs. These kind of dogs have been instrumental in freeing people. You hear about uh, dogs for the blind, but it goes so much, the range is so much more. I had no idea. But the problem today is that anybody with 20 bucks who wants to bring their dog anywhere can buy a vest that says service dog, and then they take a dog into a place where the dog's supposed to be well-behaved, and it isn't because it hasn't been properly trained. And uh, uh, it has actually become a, a kind of a serious problem. And that just puts a taint on all the legitimate. Uh, it takes many, many hours to train a good service dog of yeah. any kind or a good scent detection dog, and they're not cheap. Back when I wrote, when I interviewed the guy, they were at least $10,000 for a bed bug detecting dog. I'm, I don't know what they would be now. Um, uh, so, you know, a lot of time and effort goes because if you want accuracy, you have to keep repeating it and repeating it. Right. Okay. So now, in terms of advice and to an aspiring writer on how you did your research for writing uh, this Doodlebug series, 
what would you give us like, okay, this is, I would recommend you do this and this and this to make sure you get it right. Well, in any of my research, I try to make a list of what I need to know. And then now with the web, I'm old enough that I, we didn't always have the web. <laughs> uh, you know, you can find a lot of things. And then I was not afraid the way I interviewed this man that had been one of the founding uh, bed bug scent detection dogs is I found him on the internet and uh, sent him an email, applied email asking him for an interview, and he he gave it to me. He was nearby? No, he was in Florida. But we called. He gave me a phone conversation. Okay. One of the most entertaining I've ever had. And, uh, um, he, he, you know, you don't be afraid to contact people who know, get in hold, get a hold of experts, whoever that is, in whatever you're writing about. Find out who the experts are. Find out what they know. Find somebody that is willing to talk to you and explain. Because so often we have, even like you didn't know there was bed bug detecting dogs. So often we have, we think we know about something, right. but if you're actually in the field. You, do, you realize that there's a lot more to that. And I think readers read for that kind of depth of knowledge. Do you uh, find, you mentioned uh, internet like Google, but do you find primary research or secondary research to be better? Do you like, is it better to just find a, an expert in the field and talk to them and just bend their ear for as long as you need or then just to go in, online and just start searching? Well, I do both. You know, why limit yourself? Uh, one of the things I said, Molly's parents are Mexican. And at some point, I hope to be able to translate these books into Spanish mm -hmm. because they kind of deal with Latino issues throughout the books. But um, I, uh, for my book, Roughhouse, I had a friend who was an immigration attorney for Latino people. And I interviewed her at length, and she cleared up some mis misconceptions I had, some of the things that I would have gotten wrong if I hadn't right. talk talked to her about some of the uh, about the issues in immigration, and especially with people who had been here a long time, and that that kind of situation. Same thing with scent detection dogs. I mean, I. I cultivate as many sources as I can, not only for the information from my research, but for new ideas for other books. So you've got seven in the Doodlebug series, and you've also wrote uh, this, the one they just came out that you dedicated. Tree Talker. Tree Talker. What kind of a book is that? Now, Tree Talker goes back to the, in a way, but, and I, actually I had been working on it before I switched I like to say, before I let my writing go to the dogs, <laughs> I, uh, I had been working on it before I started the Doodle Bug Mysteries right. and had written quite a bit. Um, it goes back to my Hopi uh, Native American research and that. But in Tree Talker, it's a combination of a Celtic and Hopi myth in a contemporary story set in a small town in Utah and uh, about a boy who... Uh, is Hopi, and he has always had a thing for plants. He can 
feel what plants need. He can know what they need. Right. And his grandmother has said, you know, um, look for the badger, look for uh, animals that are in his clan, but he hasn't had any of that. He has plants. And then a tree speaks to him, and he eventually it comes out that his father, who is Irish and has abandoned him, I have a lot of abandoned parents in my books, (laughs) has abandoned him and gone back to Ireland, was a tree talker. And so this gift came not through his mother's clan, but through his father. And uh, to complicate things, or to set things in motion, you might say, the story opens with a puka, which is an Irish mythological creature, whose normal shape is a wolf. He says, I am Riley O'Fallon, son of the wolf, you know. But he's stuck here in the body of a poodle because he said, Odrin, that old druid told me, go as a dog, he said. People will be nicer to you if you're a dog. And he says, here I am stuck in this silly coat of curls, and I can't even find a meal. I'm almost starving to death. So anyway, he, he is the one who knows about the peril of the tree, and he draws the boy and then a girl who has, later in the book, the words come up, no magic in her, which turns out to be actually a significant part of the plot at the end, into this quest right. to save the tree from a terrible enemy. I get it. So you're, you seem to be pretty dog-centric. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, pu- the puka has short... First, little first-person things, but most of the book is in the point of the boy and the girl. Okay. Just so you know, it's okay. not all dogs. Okay, good. <laughs> but I will say, in his uh, on his behalf, in his is his times for as a puka, Riley ends up in a dog shelter and ends up saving some dogs in the shelter, and they actually have also a bearing on the end of the book. Okay. Okay, I am dog-centered, I'll admit it. Yes, yes. So now, on as part of your uh, career, did you ever have any points where you're ready to throw in the towel as a writer? Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> what took so long to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was after I had a lot of promising things that didn't turn out. I, an early draft of Tree Talker, I sent an an editor from Athenaeum, a, a junior editor. She just loved it, but she couldn't sell it. You know, she she apologized three times in the letter, saying, "I'm so sorry, we can't take this. I'm so sorry." And I had a lot of that in my historical novel from some top editors. Beautiful novel, beautiful writing, not for us. I got so much of that. And here I was in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and I, there was a period for about 10 or 11 years where I thought every day, maybe I should just quit writing. You know, I'm getting too old. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. where is it going? And, uh, I, you know, and then I wrote the Doodlebug books, and I got some interest in editors, but, you know, again, nothing that... Uh, came through, and then um, 
I had resisted indie publication because I thought it was a sign that you're a wannabe loser. And uh, yet I had a lot of credentials along the way. Right, right. And uh, I decided that I'm getting to an age where I can't wait two years for a book to get published. That doesn't mean that I just slopped it out there and didn't care about the quality of it or make, making sure Indy it was... has changed so much. Yeah, copy editing and the cover. I didn't have the money for covers. I did my first covers. The, I also did the second covers, but the covers now are a second when I learned more. And I just spent hours and hours... I mean, it didn't mean I didn't care about the quality of the book. And you do get indie publishing things that are really poorly written and, yep. and that. But, you know, I, you know Chris and Dean. There's so many people making big bucks indie publishing, and they are professionals. Yeah, there's so many people that are going the indie route right now, making way more money. And they're not also restricted to just one book a year. You, right. can, you can publish wherever you want to, or because if you go to a, a traditional publishing, it's, they'll give you a book a year and nothing more than that, and they want to be able to control the vertical and horizontal. They'll say, okay, no, you need this. No, you do that. No, we can't do this. No, do this. I think this would be a better cover. I think this title might be better. And it might be true, but how much are you willing to relinquish your control of what you're doing? Right. And I really wanted to connect with readers. Yeah. And that's what happened. I was able to connect with readers who love the, you know, the doodle debug books. Yeah. And I hope we'll love, I will get readers who love the tree talker books. I'm hoping to write two more in the series. But, uh, you know, you have so much control. I can get on Amazon every day and see how much money I, how much money I made. Yeah. Now, are you, you're full-time now as a writer and. Yeah. Well, I'm retired, but yeah, full-time but, as a writer. Yeah. But otherwise, but you make your. Living as as a writer, that, yeah. that, that's enough money for you to to live on. Uh, no, I'm married, and we're retired, and I make money, but I don't make like many indie publishers enough to like support the household. Right, but you're definitely able to make a, a substantial income to be able to support what you do do with your conferences. Right, right. I had a friend uh, who actually was an old member of Zenobia who wrote this long screed on Facebook about how he had decided to take all the costs of self-publishing his book. And it turned out that he was in the hole $25,000. And I just shook my head and said, dude, you are doing things wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I make a profit. If I didn't make a profit every year, from what I spend. And I would like to make more money. I'd like to get the books in audio. I think they would be sure very be popular fun, yeah. in audio. And that's the next round. We do have ACX with, with Amazon. Is, is That is a resource. It is a resource, yes. It's not necessarily the only one, but it is yeah. a resource. Yeah, and I, I'm not an expert. I haven't done enough research. I know there's different people sure. that like different things. Brandon Sanderson just came out with something about yeah, he doesn't want to do Amazon. He's yeah, doing, right. Which is Audible. which is fine. Hopefully, it does result in more money for the for the intellectual property of the authors. Right. But I, 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 but that is my next goal, along with writing new books. Sure, sure. So um, now, when you talk about M. Shane Bell, because he was a winner seven years before you, are you in are you in regular communication with, with other writers of feature winners? Oh yeah, you know we have so many people here. 
I'm on Facebook with many of them. So uh-huh. that, I guess that counts as regular communication. For sure. For sure. Uh, Scott Parkin and Scott Bronson and Lee Allred. Uh-huh. Uh, Lee Allred has been, I was going to say Lee Allred was the one who practically forced me to take a Chris and Dean workshop. Really? <laughs> he, le- he left a computer for me there so I wouldn't have to carry one. And he lied to me. He told me I wouldn't have to write something overnight <laughs> because I was so worried about being able to, to do it. And then later, a few years later, um, I don't know if you know Sheldon MacArthur, but he ran Mysterious Bookstore in L.A., and it was a very, it was considered a, a big bookstore. It and is, he, yeah. and he uh, was a big collector. Well, he retired and moved to Lincoln City and had a little bookstore called North by Northwest Books. And Lee Allred. Well, that's his. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Lee Allred took the, my first two doodlebook books to Sheldon and said, You might be interested in them. And he loved them. And so he ordered 10 copies of each book and had me do a book signing. And so, you know, I mean, so yes, the support from various other writers of the future. Uh, Shane has been sick for some time, right. but uh, but he is such a sweet, good person. That's great. And such a beautiful writer. Yeah, I, I try to stay in touch as much as possible. So like I said, when I, when I saw you there, I said, you know, as you know, there, there was... There was little lag between seeing you and and rushing you. <laughs> yeah, right. It's okay. It's okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm grateful. Yeah, and I saw John Brown. I hadn't seen him. Oh, yeah, forever. John Brown. Yeah. He doesn't remember the story, but I remember the story. I think we were actually at Shane's house for some kind of writing thing, and uh, uh, we got a call, and uh, Writers of the Future was desperately trying to get hold of him because they needed some information. And he, uh, John Brown wasn't there, but we tracked him down and made sure he got the phone call. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, no, he was in John. And he went on to sell a lot of books and do very well as a publisher. Yeah. Was he also in volume 13 or was he, no, he was, he said he was in volume, I think he said 10. But um, no, it's, it's great every time I see a past winner, you know, how they've, how they've done, just like, wow, it is, it, it's so refreshing you know to see all these careers that were launched with writers of the future and like i said now i have the opportunity to still you know like this podcast is going to go out it'll get listened to by two million people in 110 countries so hopefully we'll get definitely dog lovers of which there's a kajillion of I could have done cats. I actually threw a cat in my last book just to try to expand my audience. You know, yeah. uh, I, I want to say, too, when I was so discouraged for those 10 years, I finally realized I need to find an audience. I need to find my audience. Mm-hmm. And now I have, oh, you know, a thousand or so uh, members of my newsletter group. And one of my reviews of Tree Talker said, while I'm waiting for Susan Krupa to finish or to write the next Doodlebug book, <laughs> I read this one and then she liked it too. But to have people waiting for your book, eager to read it, Shane actually told me he loved the Doodlebug books and his mother was dying of cancer some years ago and he read them to her aloud and he wrote me a note saying, thank you for easing 
her mind when she was in pain um, because these books brought her joy at a very troubled time. You, these things are worth more than being on the national bestseller list. Not that I wouldn't take that, but yeah. uh, this yeah. is, I mean, if you're only in it to try to make a bajillion dollars, to me, you're not writing for the right reason. Yeah. I mean, it's the, if you're going to make it as your as your livelihood, then you do need to be able to. You need to. You need to make. Uh, you need to make the money, but you're right. That, absolutely. That's the exchange for a good product. It's not the product isn't the money. The product is a good book. The exchange is your fans that want more and willing to pay for it, and that that enables you to to carry on. Right, and I write to touch people. I want to open a world to them and. Uh, it may sound a little smarmy, but open their hearts a little in my books. Yeah, well, that's that's a good thing these days when um, it's so easy to read stuff that's anything but that. You know, right. If you read the news, if you listen, it's just like, or even just track with some social media, you can. It's very easy to get beaten down. So it's important to have something where it's like it comes out okay in the end. Well, not just that. You know, I mean, one of the things I strive for is not to be sentimental, but to be genuinely moving. Mm -hmm. This isn't a sentimental story where everything magically turns out. I mean, they do all have happy endings, but I want a little poignancy. I want a little depth to the story also because I think it's more meaningful than just sentiment. But we live in a society, we have a hard time finding anything to watch because everything is so dark. Yeah. Uh, and I've had enough dark. Sure. I'm, I can totally track him with you on that. Um, you mentioned when I, asked, when I asked you about reading any of uh, Hubbard's fiction, you said you read Mission Earth, the, the Mission Earth series. Okay. The Mission Earth series. What about that did you find, because you were so like perky when you said that? Uh, well, you know, I... When I won Writers of the Future, I hadn't really read much science fiction. I read mysteries all my life. Mm -hmm. I was very much a mystery fan. And I don't even know how I got Mission Earth. I, I have no memory except that I went to the library and checked out a lot of things. And all I remember is that it was so engaging and the fight, you know, for the world and the, the people was, was very engaging. Yeah, and the fact that with Mission Earth, you've got... Mission Earth is a mission to keep Earth from destroying itself. Right. Which you don't think, first you think it's a mission to come in, let's go and take over Earth. But no, it's a mission to keep from destroying itself. But the mission handlers are trying to make the mission fail because they're using all the drugs manufactured on Earth to subvert their home planet. <laughs> and it's just, it's satire on the drugs, the politics, the um, the shyster lawyers, the um, crazy sex that's, that's happened, the... Uh, the the president of the planet, uh, Rocket Center, <laughs> you know, all these all these things that are going on. You're kind of like, wow. And in, when he wrote it in the early '80s, it was definitely like, it was definitely science fiction. But I've gotten people now who have been reading it because we're getting ready to re-release it, who said it's more like commentary on planet Earth right now. You know, they you know I, I and I think I probably missed that. I think I was. Just reading for the action, probably at that time. Well, but definitely I, mega action. But uh, but that's interesting. Maybe I'll give it a reread. Yeah. So on your writing and and what you're planning on doing for the for the future as an author, 
what do you see, or maybe it's now because you've already established yourself as an author, but for somebody aspiring to, to break in there, and you went from waiting or trying to get the traditional to going indie, what were some of the things that you had to successfully accomplish to make it as an indie author? Uh, I think the biggest thing, first of all, you need a good product. Absolutely. You need a good product. You need a well-written story. You need it to be copy edited. You need to have an attractive product. You know, uh, Marnie Parkin here, I'm sure you know her, has done my interiors and does a beautiful job of the interiors of the book. You need something that doesn't look like it was mimeographed. Right. Uh, yeah. So that's that's just the basic. I mean, first of all, you need a good story. And if you don't know how to write a good story, then you need to learn. And I will tell you a a changing book for me, a, a paradigm-changing book for me. I was always looking to how to improve my writing. And Orson Scott Card, who is a judge for you, um, his um, Characters and Viewpoint book, which was written for Writer's Digest, I think, as one of their series, was so well-written. It, it not just, it didn't only tell you what to do. He put examples of, you know, the bad way, the good way, all the way through it. And after that, my writing was much, much better. So the first part of indie publishing, to get back to our original question, was learn to write. Good. And one point on that, too, is we've, the Rise of the Future, we now have, since you were first winning back then, three years ago, we posted an online writing workshop, free online writing workshop, which has got videos from Orson Scott Card, Tim Powers, and Dave Wolverton on all the mechanics and all the steps of writing a story. Wow. I wish I would have had that. <laughs> I did. I have taken um, uh, Dave Wolverton, one of his classes back, and we were neighbors, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, he just lived around the corner from me, and we would walk dogs together sometimes. Yeah. And it was very sad that he, he passed, passed when yeah. he did. But, uh, yeah, uh, that's a wonderful resource. Learn to write mm -hmm. and uh, learn to learn what you want to say. And then when you go, you were asking the difficulty of indie publishing. Once you have a good product, the issue is discoverability. It is really hard. There's everything out there. How is anybody even going to find your book? Who cares? Who are you? Uh, and... Uh, um, I had, uh, I published Bedbugged, and, you know, on the month of my birthday, I had seven sales, and that was good. <laughs> uh, and I was getting kind of discouraged, even though I'd written the next one. And uh, Michael Carr, and I can't remember if he was a Wadaf winner or not. He might have been. But he uh, contacted me and said, um, you need to do promotions. He says, I'm looking at Bedbugged and it's good, but you need to do promotions like e-reader news today or, you know, something. So I took him at his word and I did an e-reader news today promotion and got something like $400 in a day and thought, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he went on to write uh, as Michael Wallace and he supported himself for uh, as a writer, years. Yes. You're right. Well, that's amazing. So that's... Because that's something that people more and more, 
and it's been getting more on, on the podcast as well because I have such um, a volume of, of aspiring writers want to get it. And if you can get that connection to traditional publishing, that's great. But when I talk to like some of our judges, even like um, Dean Leslie Smith, he's a, a firm believer in self-publishing, but also more and more authors like Kevin Anderson as well as Dean. Dean does, I think he says, six Kickstarters a year. Yes. And Kickstarter is... You need, but you need to have a, a base of followers. You need to have right. a fan base. That's where social media comes into play, to have people that, or in a group or something where you've got a big following. So that when you come out and do a Kickstarter, you've got people that will support it and share the news about it and get it known, so that you can then fund your project. And if you do it right, it's, it's fully pays for itself before the first book is printed. Right. I would say too. Um, if you're trying to get into indie publishing, you should get hold. You should follow Chris and Dean's writings because when I did the first workshop with them, uh, we played the game. I don't know. Have you ever heard of that? In the game, it's like a role-playing game. You're an author who just sold a book. You sold two books for a small advance, and you roll the dice for the ups and downs of a traditionally published author. They don't do that anymore because... Publishing has changed so much. They're into indie publishing. But uh, one of the pitfalls of, of uh, traditional publishing now are the contracts. And I was going to say one of the beauties of the Writers of the Future contest, that was the other thing. It didn't ask for all rights. It didn't ask for all these rights. That Sometimes you read a contest and they want the right to publish that in every language and use the characters any way they want. I mean, if you don't read your contracts, you're in trouble. But Writers of the Future has such good contracts. Yeah. It, we want to celebrate new writers. But as I was, knew it would happen, we're at the end of our hour. <laughs> Amazing how that happened. Just, uh, it was fun. Yeah, definitely fun. I just... I love Rise of the Future winners, and it's just great. I'm, I was so excited to be able to meet you, like I said. Oh, I'm excited to meet years. you, too. Yes. I guess you were there when I was, yeah. but I don't remember you. That's fine. It was back then, I wasn't the president. I was the, the, the chief schlepper. Chief schlepper. And <laughs> I, we I were worked at, myself up. We were <laughs> at the, some fancy house. We were at the... <clears throat> was it at the um, Hotel Elysee? They... Yeah. Your volume 10, yeah. So that's... Yeah. Yeah, Bradbury was there, and you had a lot of great... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that so were there. Cool. Anyway, I very much appreciate your time okay. here. Okay, well, thank you. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Susan. Uh, thank you.